Titus chapter 1, and beginning to read at uh, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. The man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Amen. Father God, we come to your word. You've called us to tremble at your word, to honor it, to reverence it, to obey it. And Father, that is our desire this morning. I pray that your spirit would illumine our minds, that you would enable me to faithfully uh, speak uh, your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we started looking at the book of Titus because I think there are so many parallels between Titus's church plant and our own. Uh, for example, um, uh, the church plant that he was engaged in was facing an unbelievably pagan society in uh, the island uh, of Crete, and the church looked a little bit strange, actually Scott Polsky said last week that uh, our church is a peculiar church, and he hastened to say, but I mean that in a good way. I love it, you know. He was saying that he's convinced he's not going to find another church like this if he went down to Texas, and I said, that's right. That's why you need to stay here. (laughs) But um, anyway, in a different sense of the term, our church is peculiar, and any church that tries to make an antithesis in society, trying to be, like the Scripture says, black and white in an all-gray society, is going to look different. And that was what was going on uh, with that church there. We're going to be seeing that Crete was unbelievably degenerate. And so he is emphasizing so strongly, this church needs to be holy. Uh, Crete has a reputation, even in the secular documents, to be uh, a, a, a city that was characterized by, uh, I mean, an island that was characterized by deceit and lying. And Paul alludes to that later on. And he says, we need to be radically honest in our relationships with one another, in our relationship to the world. Uh, the family life amongst the Cretans was not that strong. And so Paul exhorts Titus that he needs to be taking seriously the older men and the younger men and making sure they're solid in the faith, having the mature women training the younger women on what it means to have a radically biblical family life. From the ground up, he was making a Gideon's army that would hopefully revolutionize this island of Crete. And in fact, history tells us that this is what happened. But he couldn't take anything for granted. And we can't take anything for granted in this church either. Secondly... This church was not just different from the world, it was different from the Jewish synagogues. Titus was seeking to influence the Jewish church toward Reformation, and as a result, he was getting a lot of flack. Uh, there was um, a lot of backlash. And I, I think in studying the history of this epistle that the Jewish synagogues were in just as desperate a need of Reformation as the evangelical church of today is in need of reformation. God says that they professed to know him, and yet they were making zero impact upon their society. 
That's not the way God intended life to be. He said there's, not, there's something that is not right going on there. Uh, rather than transforming culture, even the believing Jews who were in the synagogues had retreated into a ghetto kind of a culture where they were preoccupied with debates that really were not that important. In fact, he calls them foolish debates in chapter 3. Uh, the evangelical scene was very discouraging, just as discouraging, I think, as our own situation here in America is. And in trying to make a difference, Titus found himself in a constant state of con controversy. And what does Paul do? Well, Paul encourages Titus not to waste his time arguing with teachers who aren't going to be, and theologians who aren't going to be affecting culture anyway. He says, get on with the business of the work. Don't be preoccupied with all of these debates that they want to weigh you down in. Uh, you need to realize that the proof is in the pudding. What are they contributing to the reformation of society? And I think we need to face that same question as well because we're going to be faced with a lot of naysayers who will criticize what we are doing and say that it's, uh, you know, something that's not achievable. Um, but... Uh, what we need to say is, if you don't like the law of God, well, what's your alternative? Are you going to look to the law of Satan? Are you going to look to the law of humanism? I mean, what is the alternative to God's laws that evangelicals don't like? If they don't like the biblical principles of courtship and marriage, where are you going to look? What are the alternatives? That's what we need to ask. And so don't be weighed down with all kinds of debates. Titus was called to promote a godly church, chapter 1, godly families, chapter 2, and a godly culture impacting the culture to the glory of Christ and stop worrying about what the critics were saying. Another parallel that we see between his church and ours is that his church was, for the most part, a solo church plant. Titus was given the powers of an evangelist, like Presbytery has given me, where he could ordain and install elders uh, without, um, uh, without a session. Ordinarily, it's done through a session. And I mentioned two weeks ago that the ideal is for a church plant to be established by a team. So right off the bat, you've got, in a sense, a session working, and by the time you leave, there's going to be a healthy th session that is there. But that's not always possible because Paul's church planting team mainly focused on the large, huge metropolitan areas. And it was a wonderful strategy. The PCA MTW team uses this, exactly the same strategy. And from there, there would be feed out. But occasionally, there would be an area that God providentially opened up that didn't warrant the entire team going there. And so he would put a person like Titus in there to try to establish some churches in, uh, in Crete. And so even though Zenos and Apollos delivered this message to Titus, they don't stay. Now, I'm sure that Titus would have loved nothing better than for Zenos and Apollos and a bunch of others to stay with him and work because it was a slow, discouraging work that he was involved in. Uh, how slowly did this church develop? We gave a hint of it last week, but if William Hendrickson is correct, uh, it took 13 years from the time that Paul and Titus first came to Crete till the time that he wrote this letter. But the very shortest time that it could have been is somewhere in the range of five to seven years. And it depends on where this is placed in terms of uh, Paul's missionary uh, journeys. And um, so... In one sense, we can be encouraged by that, that even in biblical times, churches don't get off the ground, you know, real, real quickly uh, all the time. Now, hopefully, another parallel is that church history says that Titus remained in Crete for the rest of his life. 
and I would love nothing better than to remain here in Omaha ministering uh, for the rest of my life. Another parallel is that they started with a core group, and the reason that we believe that there were core groups not just here, but there were core groups in other cities is comparing verse 5 here with Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, you've got Jews from all over the world, and it mentions Jews from Crete who had come there. They got converted, and they went back to Crete. Well, there weren't any churches in Crete, so they uh, probably went back into the synagogues, which were, you know, treated by Paul as being the church. It's only later on that Paul says, come out from among them and be separate, you know. Uh, lest you, or, uh, actually, Apostle John says that in Revelation, to come out of that church. But at this time, they probably either went into those churches or they formed their own separate Bible studies, sort of like what's going on up in Oakland, Nebraska, and up in Sioux City, Iowa, where they're under our jurisdiction. You know, we give support and we try to give encouragement, but it's going to be a long time before those two works have any ruling elders or have a a teaching elder that uh, they would be able to support. And so you can see why I am very, very interested in what Paul says to Titus. Uh, I think it's very relevant to what we're going through. Now, last week, we looked at the fundamentals of ministry that are outlined in verses 1 through 4, and I'm going to pick up at verse 5. For this reason, I left you in Crete. Now, Gordon Clark points out that when the Greek for this reason is used, almost always it points back to what's been preceding. And if that's the case here, then the fundamentals of ministry that we looked at last week, he wants them established everywhere. These are important principles he wanted to be established. If it's referring to what comes afterwards, which is the way New King James Version translates it, and most commentators tend to go in that direction, that's the way I take it as well then his main purpose for establishing Titus there was to make sure that these churches become established and that elders are put in place. Well, that means he hasn't made a whole lot of progress yet. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I uh, commanded you. We saw last week that even though a church can survive for a long period of time without ruling elders, it's not healthy. It's lacking something. And we saw our church is lacking, even though we have tried to put things into place that can help to compensate to some degree. Until elders are established in the PCA, you're not considered particularized yet. And uh, I think there's an important reason for that. It's still lacking. It's still lacking. And so uh, we can sympathize with with Titus on that. The second thing that we see in verse 5 is that Paul has a tremendous vision for Crete. He is not content with Titus establishing just one church in this island. He wants churches established in every city of uh, of that uh, island. He wants to transform society in chapter 3. Okay, well, how do you transform society like chapter 3 talks about? You start in chapter 1, verse 5. You plant churches. And you make sure that there are elders that are established in those churches. And then you disciple the families so that they are strong, chapter 2. And then you make sure that those families are influencing society to the glory of Christ. That's how you do it. Now, here's the problem. Titus has not been able to establish even one church yet. There's people that are gathering. He's been preaching to them, but he's not been able to establish one church yet or get one off the ground Because the fact that elders have to be established in every city implies there isn't any city in Crete that has elders yet. Not even one church 
that has been particularized yet. And um, so we're talking about an incredible vision that Paul is giving to a church that still has a ways to go. Paul wants Titus, you know, to be encouraged that this is, this is the direction. Here's the plans, you know. Don't be giving up because things have gone slowly. He didn't have an M&A committee, Mission to North America committee, breathing down his back saying, if you don't get done in two years, you know, and particularize, we're cutting off the funds. No, he was very encouraging. He sends people to him. There's constant contact with the oversight committee that uh, he was a part of. He has them visiting chapter 3. Verses 12 and 13, he actually sends somebody so that Titus can be freed up to come and to uh, be with Paul for a period of time. And so uh, right from the beginning, Paul makes sure he maintains a high vision that this church is going to be turning the culture of Crete upside down. And to me, that's encouraging, very, very encouraging. There are thrills, there are discouragements in church planting, and I think you're going to appreciate what he brings up in the rest of this book. Now, let's go on to point number two. Paul also speaks of the need for fellow elders, and I see that in two phrases in verse 5. First phrase, things that are lacking, and I won't comment on that because we dealt with that last week. And then the second phrase, should set in order. Now, that phrase, should set in order, is one Greek word, and that word is a medical term. It's a, a term that was used by doctors to mend broken bones or to straighten out crooked limbs. Uh, on Labor Day, my uh, daughter Elizabeth uh, fell at the park and snapped two arms in her, in her arm. And when Ben brought her to me, boy, her arm looked crooked. I looked at that thing. I said, aye, we need a physician, you know. And Paul is using this term to say that the congregation of Crete had spiritual problems. They had broken limbs, as it were, that needed ruling elders as physicians in their lives. Why? We might ask the question, why? Titus is there. Isn't Titus's preaching going to be enough to mend those broken bones? I mean, surely preaching every Sunday and maybe preaching on Wednesday night and having some other Bible studies, that ought to be enough. And Paul says, no, that is not enough to mend these broken bones. If it was, Titus would have been able to accomplish the task all by himself. And you can look in the ministry of Christ and you'll see exactly the same balance. You see Christ who was engaged in a public ministry, and then you see him also engaging in a one-on-one -on -one ministry with just a small group of people, uh, the, the 12 disciples. And um, I have over the years been amazed at how people can listen to my sermons, and uh, I think it's clear as could be, you know, it's just one, two, three, four, here's the steps, you know, for changing. And they can't do it on their own, you know. They're, they're, they're needing help, you know. How do I do this? And I'm thinking, you know, I've preached thoroughly on this, and I need to come alongside, and I need to shepherd them, and I need this one-on-one -on -one, uh, coaching ministry to get them past the, the, the obstacles and into righteousness. They need counseling. And Christ's uh, 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 preaching had the same uh, results. Many times Christ was amazed that people didn't get it. How many times did Jesus say, how is it you do not understand? He's just been preaching publicly, but he has to come alongside of them one-on-one, -on -one, and he has to be training them what it means, coaching them, and say, no, no, that's not quite the right way. There's, there's something about the one-on-one -on -one discipleship 
that enables people to get along that preaching by itself will not accomplish. Both are needed, both were important in Christ's ministry, but the preaching by itself was not enough. And one of the books that revolutionized my thinking at Prairie Bible Institute on this was Robert Coleman's book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. It's a great book showing the methodology that Jesus had of turning the world upside down depended on this one-on-one discipleship process. Uh, Paul gave as the model, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. And so verse 5 very clearly says discipleship cannot happen by Titus's preaching alone, nor can he disciple hundreds of people. If Christ wasn't able to disciple one-on-one hundreds of people. We can't expect Titus to to do that. Christ only had uh, 12 apostles. Christ trained the leaders, and the leaders then were training the people. That was the the process. And that's my vision of eldership. And actually, verses 5 through 16 of this chapter show that there can be no substitute for personal shepherding. Anytime there are new believers, they're going to be bringing baggage into the church. You know, old sinful habits, different ways, attitudes, uh, reactions to people. And the elders are going to need to be there one-on-one helping them to fix their broken bones, as it were, helping them to work uh, through that. And as we go through this book, you're going to be seeing that there were an unusually high number of problems in this church. And the reason for that is they've been, been a church for a long time without ruling elders. I think many of these problems could have been avoided if they had had ruling elders in place that uh, were uh, doing their roles. And so verse 5 commands Titus, appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Now, under point number 3, we're going to be looking in a little bit at the difference between the roles for teaching elder Titus and for the ruling elders. Uh, There is a difference, and you're maybe getting a little bit of a feel for that already. But under point two, I want to defend the idea that all of them share the shepherding ministry. All are elders, all are overseers, all are pastors. Only one oversees the whole, but all of them are shepherds. And by the way, this is not mentioned here, but there is a parity. Parity means an equality of of authority among the elders in the courts of the church. Now, there's not an equality in function. That's impossible. That never happens. But there is an equality in terms of authority in the courts. And so an elder who is ruling in some committee or he is involved in some, um, uh, some type of a work, maybe voting at General Assembly, he has no more authority than any ruling elder in our church does in terms of what's done in any particular court. There is a parity across the board. Now, here's the problem. Not everybody in the evangelical world buys into that, uh, buys into the PCA's vision on that or the old Presbyterian vision, and that means we need to deal with a little controversy. I wish I didn't have to deal with this controversy because there's a lot of fun things I'd like to get into, but you're going to run across uh, Baptists and Methodists and Episcopalians and even the occasional Presbyterian who will say that the only thing that the elders are involved in is what is mentioned in verse 6. Okay, and then they will say that the bishop, Titus, they make a distinction there. His work starts in verse 7 and following. And so there's really not a whole lot. They say that the elders are representatives of the people, but they're not engaged in pastoral or shepherding uh, ministry. And um, uh, anyway, in the Episcopal system, and it's used by Methodists, Anglicans, and others, 
um, there is, um, well, let, let me just back up a little bit. Let me, let me emphasize that even though we're going to be dealing with a controversy and that there are differences of view, there are godly people who stand on both sides, on different sides of this question. I've got a very good Anglican friend. Uh, he's not part of the main Anglican church. It's a spin-off from the church. He's a godly man. I think he's a very, very faithful minister of Christ. I just flat out disagree with him on uh, his views of, um, of uh, what church government should be. And these people would just rule out point number two altogether. They would say, absolutely, they are not fellow elders with Titus. Okay, so this is what we're going to be um, what we're going to be dealing with. Are they engaged in a pastoral ministry? And here's what my Anglican friend would say on this passage. This is probably the strongest passage that they could appeal to. So I can understand why this would be an important one. But this passage perfectly fits in with Presbyterianism. There is absolutely nothing to be embarrassed about in this passage whatsoever. Uh, here's first of all what he would say. He would say that. Even if Presbyterianism can be shown in church government in the Old Testament and in other passages in the New Testament, that the Bible does not mandate one form of government, and so long as it works and so long as it's efficiently promoting the cause of Christ, we ought not to worry about it. And you Presbyterians are just a little bit hyper and legalistic and insisting that everything the church does has to be justified by the Scripture. See, we are divine right Presbyterians. It means that God alone can determine what is the government. We can't make it up. But they would say, first of all, there isn't any one form that is mandated. The second thing that he would say is that even though other passages allow for other forms of government, this one clearly teaches at least some aspects of Episcopal form of government. And he would say, well, it doesn't teach everything. There are levels that aren't mentioned, and it's true that uh, uh, Archbishop Titus is not doing the kinds of thing our archbishops do. That ought to say something by itself. But he says, at least it points in the direction that there are levels of government that are there. Uh, he says it's hierarchicalism. Hierarchicalism means that there are different officers who have authority over each other. And they would have, I think in your outline there, I've got deacons, deans, priests, elders, bishops, archbishops, cardinals, and in the Roman Catholic Church, you've got a pope, in some other churches, you've got a papas. But in Presbyterianism, that's not the case. All elders have equal authority and rule in every court of the church. Okay? There is no, there is no higher or, or lower. Anyway, back to their argument, they make Titus out to be an archbishop who is himself under the Apostle Paul. And so you've got four levels of authority here. They say... Paul commanded Titus, uh, Archbishop Titus commanded the bishops who were underneath him, and the bishops who were underneath him commanded the elders. And the elders, there would be one elder per church, but they say there must have been a massive number of churches out there because there's elders in every city. And so they say there's a hierarchicalism that uh, is implied in this passage. <clears throat> Likewise, in verse 5, they say that clearly teaches that Archbishop Titus unilaterally appointed bishops and elders without any congregational approval. Uh, unilateral means you make the decision, you don't consult anybody. You don't consult the congregation as to what they want. For example, there are denominations, evangelical denominations, that if we were a part of them, 
And the bishop, who was above me, thought that um, I was needed in South Carolina. They could tell me tomorrow, okay, pack your bags. You know, in one month, you're going to be in South Carolina. We're going to bring Alan Mallory, or we're going to bring somebody else in this congregation. You wouldn't have any say in it, okay? That would be the Episcopal form of government. We'd say, that's not biblical. The Bible says so clearly that the congregation does have some input on what needs to be said. And they say, no way. Look at verse 5. This is so clear, they say, that uh, even if you're blind, you'd be able to see it. Let me read it how they would emphasize it. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. They say, where is the congregation in there? Titus does everything. There is no congregational vote whatsoever. And what we would respond to that is, well, first of all, you don't pit one scripture against other scriptures. There's other scriptures that even they admit talk about congregational approval. So you can't pit one against the other. The second thing that we would say is that uh, uh, this passage perfectly harmonizes with exactly the way that we do things. And you need to harmonize the scriptures because the scriptures are truth. There is a consistency there. And then thirdly, an argument from silence, which is what they're giving, there's no mention of the congregational's role in here, does not prove a thing. It's fallacious. We could just as easily say, well, there's nothing in here that says the congregation wasn't involved. You know, either argument's not a very good argument. But what we would say is that there are other scriptures which most certainly say every time that elders were appointed, the congregation was involved. Let me give you one. Acts 14, verse 23. It uses a technical Greek term that uh, was used in the Greek democracies for elections. Uh, literally, it means to choose by uh, raising hands, but you can translate it as choose or to uh, elect. When they had elected elders in every church. Now, if they did it in every church, eventually when a church gets established in Crete, they're going to be electing elders in that uh, church as well. And so when you compare Scripture with Scripture, you see that... Um, the congregation does have a role to play. Another passage you could write in the margin if I didn't put it in there is Acts chapter 6. That's with regard to deacons. The same word appointed is used, and so these deacons are appointed, but how are they appointed? Well, that passage says there was an election that ha happened, and so there's a role that Titus plays. There's a role that the congregation plays. And so unless there was clear, clear evidence to the contrary that Crete did things differently than other churches, I think this, this argument would be very weak. Then they'll respond, but it's clear that Titus was not elected to this congregation either. Verse 5 says Paul left him there. Chapter 3, verse 12 says Paul was planning to replace Titus with another person. There wasn't any congregational uh, permission that was granted there. Paul just does it. Doesn't that show no congregational input? Um, and that doesn't logically follow either because the, these verses are simply talking about Paul's role and his relationship with Titus, not the congregation's role. And actually, if you look at church history, you'll see that Paul, uh, I mean, that Titus didn't end up leaving the church after all. The congregation didn't want him to leave. He stayed there as a pastor for the rest of, uh, the rest of his life. Um, anyway, let's look at a previous church plant. If you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we see the role of Titus in this church and it's not exactly parallel to Crete, but the same words are used, and so I think we can at least see the, the consistency of how Paul uses his words. 2 Corinthians 8, and the, the verse is verse 19, but let's start reading at verse 16. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus 
This shows that Titus desires to have this ministry. It's not something he reluctantly goes into. Verse 17, For he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. Paul has exhorted Titus, I want you to do this, but he doesn't force Titus to do it. Titus goes of his own accord, which is quite something when you consider the history of Corinth and beating up their pastors. But he has a, a heart for them. He wants to go. Verse 18, and we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches, and not only that, but who was also chosen, and that's the same Greek technical word for elected, to choose by a show of hands, who was chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind. And so both Titus and this elder, uh, this officer of some sort, are chosen they're elected by the churches for this task. And so even though it's a different situation than in Crete, it at least demonstrates Paul can appoint, and yet it's consistent with Titus's own desires, and it's consistent with the church's desires and, uh, and their, their election. Uh, Acts 6, again, I mentioned that it uses the word appointment as well as uh, election. They were elected by the people. So that argument really does not hold up. Now, here are some other arguments that the Episcopalians and Baptists sometimes give. They would say, Titus is here by himself. Well, we don't question that. Phil Kaiser is here by himself, but I'm a Presbyterian, uh, and uh, I'm under authority. I'm under the committee, the oversight committee from uh, Presbytery. They're composed of elders. Elders are always involved. And by the way, Titus was under authority. The whole purpose of this epistle is to be giving directions and guidance to Titus as to how he should, how she, he should work. And um, uh, so the fact that he was by himself uh, pro proves nothing. That's the way most churches are started. Uh, what we need to ask is, is this a temporary situation and is this the ideal situation? And Paul says that it's not temporary. He wants them to have elders. He doesn't want them to be by himself, and it's not ideal because something is lacking. Now, here's another argument that they use. Titus himself ordains the elders rather than a session ordaining the elders. Well, we don't question that. Presbyteries authorized me to ordain and install elders as well if, since I have the powers of an evangelist. That's a perfectly Presbyterian uh, thing. In fact, that's the only way it can happen when a church has not been established yet. So it doesn't prove Episcopalianism. The only way you could prove that is if Paul says, this is the ideal, this is the way it should always be. And he says, no, it's not. Now, they would counter, but in verse 5, it implies an organizational overseeing ministry in Titus when it says, you should set in order the things that are lacking. And likewise, in the rest of the chapter, Titus clearly takes leadership in the church and what is taught. Chapter 2, Titus organizes all of the ministry. He's got primary teaching responsibility, and they say that shows a clear distinction between teaching elder Titus and the ruling elders. Well, most Presbyterians would not disagree at all. They would say there's one office, that's what makes the parity, but there are two orders within that office. There's the order of, of teaching, uh, the, the scribe, that would be me, and there was the order of ruling, which would be the ruling uh, uh, elders in both the Old and the New Testaments. And here's how you can think about it. Just use this as an illustration for the difference between office and order. In the Old Testament, there was the office of priesthood, and yet there were a number of different orders within that priesthood, 
order of Kohath and Merari, and there was even the order of Melchizedek outside of the Levitical order. There was one office, but there were different orders, and they dared not take on the work of a different order that they had not been assigned to. So they're going to be quite distinct uh, relationships and roles that are given and yet be under one office. Well, the same was true of the office of elder. In the Old Testament, there was one office of elder, same in the New Testament, but there were two orders. There was the teaching, uh, that was the scribes from, again, from the tribe of Levi, and then there were the, uh, there were the elders. Now, one of their arguments, I think, is a real stretcher, is when they point out that the word elders is plural in verse 5, but bishop is singular in verse 7. They say, obviously, they're different people. There's one bishop who's over the region, but there's many elders who are in a city because there's a lot of different churches that are there. And I would say, well, that's, that's, a, that, that's a real stretch because in verse 5, we've got the elders. Verse 6, that's plural, and verse 6 is singular. They admit that's talking about elders. It's the same plural versus singular. But I think even more importantly, the word four in verse seven completely blows Episcopalianism out of the water because it is defining what the elders are. They are one in the same office. Verse four does not say, in addition to elders, I want you to also to have bishops. No, he says, for a bishop must be blameless. The word for shows that he's explaining something in verse six. Why do we need to have these elders in verse 6? And why do they have to have a certain character? He says, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed. Now, in case you think that our ruling elders are going to have to wear pointy hats and funny-looking dresses, uh, bishop just means overseer in the Greek. I don't even know how the word bishop, you know, first got in there. It means overseer, and it's a reference to all of the, the ruling officers in, in, in the church. Um, Philippians 1-2 lists only two offices in the local church, bishops and deacons. In other words, overseers and deacons. Now, within the overseers, there is a division of labor. Scripture speaks of that very, very clearly. They have different work. They've got different training, different ordination. They're different orders. But I think it's a beautiful, beautiful, Titus is a beautiful summary of PCA teaching on this subject. No contradiction whatsoever. Their last argument against us is that the passage doesn't say elders in every church, but elders in every city. They hold to one elder over a church, but there must be multiple churches there because it's mentioning elders, plural, in every city. And we say, no, no, no. Other scriptures make it so clear that there must be elders, plural, in every local church. And that means when he's asking for elders in every church, he's saying there needs to be a church plant. I mean, elders in every uh, city. There needs to be a church plant in every city. Acts 14, 23 again. So when they had elected elders, plural, in every church, singular. Acts 20 speaks of elders, plural, of the church, singular. Philippians 1, 2 speaks of overseers, plural, and the deacons, plural, in the church, singular. And so the fact that he wants elders everywhere does not contradict Acts. And uh, he's just saying we need a church plant in every city. Now, turn with me to Acts 20, and we'll close off this section. And I know for some of you this was probably not the most exciting stuff, but it is important for us to understand. Acts chapter 20, and we'll wrap this section up. I want you to notice in verse 17 that Paul calls the elders of Ephesus to travel to him. From Miletus... He sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. 
So it's the elders who were called, the elders who came, and it's the elders that he is talking to. Now look at verse 28 in the middle of this speech to elders. Therefore, to take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's the word bishops. Same word as in Titus. To shepherd, that's the same word for pastor, to pastor the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so here's a clear, clear example where there are synonyms. An elder is a bishop, a bishop is an elder, and they're pastors. They all have the the same term. They're simply synonyms for that. Now, you might wonder, well, what difference does all of this make? It makes a huge difference, and I've quickly outlined them for you in your outline. First of all, it means that ruling elders truly do share in my shepherding ministry. Okay? Even though they have a different focus, they share in my shepherding ministry. Secondly, it means that the discipleship that Robert Coleman describes, and he describes it very, very beautifully, really belongs to ordained lay officers, not to unordained men as, as he makes it out to be. And that's got radical implications. Thirdly, it means that there is no way that a ruling elder is going to be able to effectively do his job if he has more than 10 families that he is responsible for. That kind of work that we're going to be looking at in verses 10 through 16 requires smaller one-on-one relationships. Now, this is where by far the most of eldership work needs to take place. In many Presbyterian churches, they don't do this work. I think this is by far the most of the work is discipleship, not in the boardroom. They do work in the boardroom as well, but by far the most of their work is shepherding the people who are underneath them. Fourth, it means we need to take the qualifications in verses 6 through 9 very, very seriously. Even though they're not involved in preaching, and that's not a requirement of them, they are teaching one-on-one. They have to be able to share God's word. In many evangelical churches, the discipleship is so informal, you've got very immature men who are discipling brand new believers, and they never get very far in terms of discipleship. But what Paul is talking about, discipleship is eldership. You know, that they're the ones who are overseeing this and making sure that it takes place. And so our discipleship program is really an eldership program, and it was reworking Exodus 18 that really convinced me of that that um, the typical approach where you just take any warm body is not the approach God used. Fifth, means even though there's a division of labor, all of the elders are called to a shepherding ministry. In a sense, they're pastors. Sixth, means Titus finally gets his ministry team. Yay. <laughs> He's, he was looking forward to this uh, ministry team. And church history tells us he also got teaching elders later on as well. But here is his ministry team that begins. Seventh, it means that the ruling elders are not inferior in office to the teaching elders. So there are enormous implications for how you interpret Titus. So we've looked at the thrills and discouragements of ministry. Secondly, the value of having a ministry team. The last thing I want to just very, very briefly look at is the fact that there are indeed differences of ministry between uh, teaching elders and uh, ruling elders. And the PCA Book of Church Order outlines these, you know, with regard to sacraments and teaching and and overseeing the church's ministries, church service, counseling. You know, he's the moderator of the session. Now, I think the PCA is inconsistent in that they have uh, ruling elders as moderators of Presbyterian and GA, but they won't allow them at the local session. Uh, But there are many differences, and if you want to see those highlighted and spelled out, read 1st and 2nd Timothy. They spell out the differences, I think, very, very clearly. 
Now, I just want to take a look at the hints that we have of, even in this book, the differences between the two. First of all, we've got the ruling elder's task spelled out in verses 10 through 16. Then look at the contrast in chapter 2, verse 1. But, as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Uh, William Hendrickson says, not only must the elders do their duty over against teaching of false religion, chapter 1, but Titus himself must give the example. And in the rest of the book, you've got this but contrasting the work of the ruling elders with the work of uh, teaching elder Titus. Uh, he's one of the elders, but his work is in addition to. He's got more that's been committed to him. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. Speak these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1, remind them. Chapter 3, verse 8, this is a faithful saying. These things I want you to affirm constantly. All of these things are references to teaching that is what? It's public. He has a very public teaching ministry, and it's in contrast with the one-on-one -on -one discipleship ministry that the, the elders are to be especially gifted in. And uh, overseeing the ministry as a whole, Titus was gifted in. Now, even the teaching elder is involved in the things that are in chapter 1 because he's one of the, the elders, but there's a difference in emphasis and training. Secondly, there's a difference in ordination. Chapter 1 indicates ruling elders are ordained locally. Teaching elders are not. Okay? They're ordained at presbytery. In fact, since there wasn't any presbytery in Crete, they had to be ordained completely outside of that nation. Uh, they were ordained in a presbytery elsewhere. 1 Timothy 4.14 talks about Timothy. He was ordained with the laying on of hands of presbytery. That was true of Titus. That was true of uh, Artemis, Tychicus, and Apollos. Titus was not a Cretan. Verse 5 says Paul left him there. Okay? Whereas the ruling elders, they already existed in the cities. They're locals. And this is exactly the same difference you find in the Old Testament between the scribes and the elders that were in the gate. Now, it's not mentioned in this book, but this explains why teaching elders in our denomination are not members of the local church here. Uh, I am I'm not a member here. I, you know, I can't uh, vote in congregational meetings. <laughs> I'm not a member. I'm a member of presbytery. Why would they do that? Well, that started all the way back at the time of Moses when God made a distinction to put in place checks and balances to preserve the purity of the ministry of the word. There had to be accountability, checks and balances. How did he do it? Well, all of the teaching elders came from the tribe of Levi, but they didn't have their own parcel of land like Dan and Naphtali and the others did. They were scattered throughout Israel, and these Levites then would go to a local community, and they would live there many generations later, you know. Their descendants would be there, but they were never considered, even though they had lived in Naphtali, generation after generation, they were still of the tribe of Levi. Why? It's to protect the preaching of the ministry of the word in terms of accountability and, and, um, and, and relationship. And even though it's not explicitly mentioned in this book, you can see hints of it. In the whole book, it's clear Titus is accountable to Paul and to Paul's ministry team. And the book of Acts makes clear Paul's ministry team reports to Presbytery and was commissioned by Presbytery. Okay? Titus 3, 12 through 13, speaks of some of the names on this ministry team. Titus needs to report to them. I've got a ministry team that I, I meet with, I report to, I'm accountable to. The elders, on the other hand, mainly have local accountability. 
Uh, we covered some other differences in our elder training uh, class. A lot of scriptures relate to this, but I wanted to at least bring up the fact of differences in ministry between the two. And again, if you want more details, read First and Second uh, Timothy. And you know what? A team ministry functions the best when there is not only a common vision, a common basis for their, uh, their, 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 their shared pastoral ministry, but where the division of labor and specialization frees them up to be the most productive. Ruling elders aren't frustrated. The teaching elder is not frustrated. Why? Because there is a maximum flexibility since Titus is freed up to lead. There is a maximum accountability because there is a parity of elders and there's a maximum of decentralization because each one of those elders has their sphere of ministry that they're accountable for. And so it's a beautiful system. Uh, we don't have time in this series to get into all of the things we went through, and you're glad, I'm sure. But uh, it really is a, a fascinating study. 35 years, uh, 3,500 years of practice ever since the time Jethro and Moses introduced this system by God's revelation. And uh, I, I think as we go through and we look at the qualifications for elders and the ministry of elders, you're going to see the genius of the system that God put in place. May it be so. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. It is to be our guide and help us to live in terms of it, and to love it and cherish it because it is our liberty as well. Thank you, Father, for this, your people. I pray that you would strengthen them. And Father, that the principles that Paul uh, uh, commanded in the book of Titus would be principles that would be fully lived out in this congregation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.